Black Clock Audio Tales 2019, Mary Shelley. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green, scaly-looking fabric that's actually a soft plush. Foam footbeds, non-slip grips on your soles so you don't slip around. One size fits most, up to women's 10.5, men's 9. Footbed measures 10.5. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter or two at a time, or a couple of short stories, maybe some folklore. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us at the end of the month every last Tuesday of the month where we have The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, where you get to hear me talk in a lot more dumb voices than right now. Look for us wherever you look for podcasts, rate, review, and give us five, four, three, two, one stars. We don't like the one and two stars, but hey, if that's how you feel, you probably have a vendetta against us and don't know how to use the skip button. We are on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Twitter as Black Clock Audio Tales, or just Google us, Black Clock Audio Tales. There's no one else named that, otherwise we wouldn't name it this. Thank you, and let's get going with The Last Man by Mary Shelley. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 3, Chapter 7 These events occupied so much time that June had numbered more than half its days before we again commenced our long protracted journey. The day after my return to Versailles, six men from among those I had left at Villeneuve-le-Guillard arrived with intelligence that the rest of the troop had already proceeded toward Switzerland. We went forward in the same track. It is strange, after an interval of time, to look back on a period which, though short in itself, appeared when in actual progress to be drawn out interminably. By the end of July we entered Dijon. By the end of July those hours, days, and weeks had mingled with the ocean of forgotten time, which in their passage teemed with fatal events and agonizing sorrow. By the end of July little more than a month had gone by, if man's life were measured by the rising and setting of the sun, but alas, in that interval, ardent youth had become gray-haired. Furrows deep and unerasable were trenched in the blooming cheek of the young mother. The elastic limbs of early manhood, paralyzed as by the burthen of years, assumed the decrepitude of age. Nights passed, during whose fatal darkness the sun grew old before it rose, and burning days to cool whose baleful heat the balmy eve, lingering far in eastern climes, came lagging and ineffectual. Days in which the dial, radiant in its noonday station, moved not its shadow the space of a little hour, until a whole life of sorrow had brought the sufferer to an untimely grave. We departed from Versailles fifteen hundred souls. We set out on the 18th of June. We made a long procession in which was contained every dear relationship or tie of love that existed in human society. Fathers and husbands with guardian care gathered their dear relatives around them. Wives and mothers looked for support to the manly form beside them, and then with tender anxiety bent their eyes on the infant troop around. They were sad, but not hopeless. Each thought that someone would be saved, 
each with that pertinacious optimism which to the last characterized her human nature, trusted that their beloved family would be the one preserved. We passed through France and found it empty of inhabitants. Some one or two natives survived in the larger towns which they roamed through like ghosts. We received therefore small increase to our numbers, and such decrease through death that at last it became easier to count the scanty list of survivors. As we never deserted any of the sick until their death permitted us to commit their remains to the shelter of a grave, our journey was long while every day a frightful gap was made in our troop. They died by tens, by fifties, by hundreds. No mercy was shown by death. We ceased to expect it, and every day welcomed the sun with the feeling that we might never see it rise again. The nervous terrors and fearful visions which had scared us during the spring continued to visit our coward troop during this sad journey. Every evening brought its fresh creation of spectres. A ghost was depicted by every blighted tree, and appalling shapes were manufactured from each shaggy bush. By degrees these common marvels palled on us, and then other wonders were called into being. Once it was confidently asserted that the sun rose an hour later than its seasonable time, again it was discovered that he grew paler and paler, that shadows took an uncommon appearance. It was impossible to have imagined, during the usual calm routine of life men had before experienced, the terrible effects produced by these extravagant delusions. In truth, of such little worth are our senses, when unsupported by concurring testimony, that it was with utmost difficulty I kept myself free from the belief in supernatural events, to which the major part of our people readily gave credit. Being one sane amidst the crowd of the mad, I hardly dared assert to my own mind that the vast luminary had undergone no change, that the shadows of night were unthickened by innumerable shapes of awe and terror, or that the wind, as it sung in the trees or whistled round an empty building, was not pregnant with sounds of wailing and despair. Sometimes realities took ghostly shapes, and it was impossible for one's blood not to curdle at the perception of an evident mixture of what we knew to be true, with the visionary semblance of all that we feared. Once, at the dusk of the evening, we saw a figure all in white, apparently of more than human stature, flourishing about the road, now throwing up its arms, now leaping to an astonishing height in the air, then turning round several times successively then raising itself to its full height and gesticulating violently. Our troop, on the alert to discover and believe in the supernatural, made a halt at some distance from this shape, and, as it became darker, there was something appalling even to the incredulous, in the lonely spectre whose gambols, if they hardly accorded with spiritual dignity, were beyond human powers. Now it leapt right up in the air, now sheer over a high edge, and was again the moment after in the road before us. By the time I came up, the fright experienced by the spectators of this ghostly exhibition began to manifest itself in the flight of some, and the close huddling together of the rest. Our goblin now perceived us, he approached, and, as we drew reverentially back, made a low bow. The sight was irresistibly ludicrous even to our hapless band, and his politeness was hailed by a shout of laughter. Then, again springing up, as a last effort, it sunk to the ground and became almost invisible through the dusky night. This circumstance again spread silence and fear through the troop. The more courageous at length advanced, and, rising the dying wretch, discovered the tragic explanation of this wild scene. It was an opera dancer, and had been one of the troop which deserted from Villeneuve-la-Guillard. Falling sick, he had been deserted by his companions. In an access of delirium he had fancied himself on the stage, 
and, poor fellow, his dying sense eagerly accepted the last human applause that could ever be bestowed on his grace and agility. At another time we were haunted for several days by an apparition, to which our people gave the appellation of the Black Spectre. We never saw it except at evening, when his coal-black steed, his mourning dress, and plume of black feathers, had a majestic and awe-striking appearance. His face, one said, who had seen it for a moment, was ashy pale. He had lingered far behind the rest of his troop, and suddenly, at a turn in the road, saw the black spectre coming towards him. He hid himself in fear, and the horse and his rider slowly passed, while the moonbeams fell on the face of the latter, displaying its unearthly hue. Sometimes at dead of night, as we watched the sick, we heard one galloping through the town. It was the black spectre come in token of inevitable death. He grew giant tall to vulgar eyes, an icy atmosphere, they said, surrounded him. When he was heard, all animals shuddered, and the dying knew that their last hour was come. It was death himself, they declared, come visibly to seize on subject earth, and quell at once our decreasing numbers, sole rebels to his law. One day at noon we saw a dark mass on the road before us, and coming up beheld the black spectre fallen from his horse, lying in the agonies of disease upon the ground. He did not survive many hours, and his last words disclosed the secret of his mysterious conduct. He was a French noble of distinction, who, from the effects of plague, had been left alone in his district. During many months he had wandered from town to town, from province to province, seeking some survivor for a companion, and abhorring the loneliness to which he was condemned. When he discovered our troop, fear of contagion conquered his love of society. He dared not join us, yet he could not resolve to lose sight of us, sole human beings who besides himself existed in wide and fertile France. So he accompanied us in the spectral guise I have described, till pestilence gathered him to a larger congregation, even that of dead mankind. It had been well if such vain terrors could have distracted our thoughts from more tangible evils, but these were too dreadful and too many not to force themselves into every thought, every moment of our lives. We were obliged to halt at different periods for days together, till another and yet another was consigned as a clod to the vast clod which had been once our living mother. Thus we continued travelling during the hottest season, and it was not till the first of August that we, the emigrants, reader, there were just eighty of us in number, entered the gates of Dijon. We had expected this moment with eagerness, for now we had accomplished the worst of our drear journey, and Switzerland was near at hand. Yet how could we congratulate ourselves on any event thus imperfectly fulfilled? Were these miserable beings who, worn and wretched, pass in sorrowful procession, the sole remnants of the race of man, which, like flood, had once spread over and possessed the whole earth? It had come down clear and unimpeded, from its primal mountain source in Ararat, and grew from a puny streamlet to a vast perennial river, generation after generation flowing on ceaselessly. The same but diversified, it grew and swept onwards towards the absorbing ocean, whose dim shores we now reached. It had been the mere plaything of nature when first it crept out, of uncreative void into light. But thought brought forth power and knowledge, and, clad with these, the race of man assumed dignity and authority. It was then no longer the mere gardener of earth or the shepherd of her flocks. It carried with it an imposing and majestic aspect. It had a pedigree in illustrious ancestors. It had its gallery of portraits, its monumental inscriptions, its records and titles. 
This was all over, now that the ocean of death had sucked in the slackening tide, and its source was dried up. We first had bidden adieu to the state of things which, having existed many thousand years, seemed eternal. Such a state of government, obedience, traffic, and domestic intercourse as had molded our hearts and capacities as far back as memory could reach. Then to patriotic zeal, to the arts, to reputation, to enduring fame, to the name of country we had bidden farewell. We saw depart all hope of retrieving our ancient state, all expectation except the feeble one of saving our individual lives from the wreck of the past. To preserve these we had quitted England, England no more, for without her children, what name could that barren island claim? With tenacious grasp we clung to such rule and order as could best save us, trusting that, if a little colony could be preserved, that would suffice at some remoter period to restore the lost community of mankind. But the game is up, we must all die, nor leave survivor nor heir to the wide inheritance of earth. We must all die. The species of man must perish, his frame of exquisite workmanship, the wondrous mechanism of his senses, the noble proportion of his godlike limbs, his mind, the throned king of these, must perish. Will the earth still keep her place among the planets? Will she still journey with unmarked regularity round the sun? Will the seasons change, the trees adorn themselves with leaves, and flowers shed their fragrance in solitude? Will the mountains remain unmoved, and streams still keep a downward course towards the vast abyss? Will the tides rise and fall, and the winds fan universal nature? Will beasts pasture, birds fly, and fishes swim, when man, the lord, possessor, perceiver, and recorder of all these things, has passed away, as though he had never been? Oh, what mockery is this! Surely death not death, and humanity is not extinct, but merely passed into other shapes, unsubjected to our perceptions. Death is a vast portal, and higher road to life. Let us hasten to pass, let us exist no more in this living death, but die that we may live. We had longed with inexpressible earnestness to reach Dijon, since we had fixed on it as a kind of station in our progress. But now we entered it with a torpor more painful than acute suffering. We had come slowly but irrevocably to the opinion that our utmost efforts would not perverse one human being alive. We took our hands, therefore, away from the long grass rudder, and the frail vessel on which we floated seemed the government over her suspended to rush proformost into the dark abyss of the billows. A gush of grief, a wanton profusion of tears, and vain laments, and overflowing tenderness, and passionate but fruitless clinging to the priceless few that remained, was followed by languor and recklessness. During this disastrous journey we lost all those, not of our own family, to whom we had particularly attached ourselves among the survivors. It were not well to fill these pages with a mere catalogue of losses. I cannot refrain from this last mention of those principally dear to us. The little girl whom Adrian had rescued from utter desertion, during our ride through London on the 20th of November, died at Auxerre. The poor child had attached herself greatly to us, and the suddenness of her death added to our sorrow. In the morning we had seen her apparently in health, in the evening Lucy, before we retired to rest, visited our quarters to say that she was dead. Poor Lucy herself only survived till we arrived at Dijon. She had devoted herself throughout to the nursing the sick and attending the friendless. Her excessive exertions brought on a slow fever, which ended in the dread disease whose approach soon released her from her sufferings. She had throughout been endeared to us by her good qualities, by her ready and cheerful execution of every duty, and mild acquiescence in every turn of adversity. 
When we consigned her to the tomb, we seemed at the same time to bid a final adieu to those peculiarly feminine virtues conspicuous in her. Uneducated and unpretending as she was, she was distinguished for patience, forbearance, and sweetness. These, with all their train of qualities peculiarly English, would never again be revived for us. This type of all that was most worthy of admiration in her class among my countrywomen was placed under the sod of desert France, and it was as a second separation from our country to have lost sight of her forever. The Countess of Windsor died during her abode at Dijon. One morning I was informed that she wished to see me. Her message made me remember that several days had elapsed since I had last seen her. Such a circumstance had often occurred during our journey when I remained behind to watch to their close the last moments of some one of our hapless comrades, and the rest of the troop passed on before me. But there was something in the matter of her messenger that made me suspect that all was not right. A caprice of the imagination caused me to conjecture that some ill had occurred to Clara or Evelyn rather than to this aged lady. Our fears, forever on the stretch, demanded a nourishment of horror, and it seemed too natural an occurrence, too like past times, for the old to die before the young. I found the venerable mother of my Idris lying on a couch, her tall emaciated figure stretched out, her face fallen away, from which the nose stood out in sharp profile, and her large dark eyes, hollow and deep, gleamed with such light as may edge a thundercloud at sunset. All was shriveled and dried up, except these lights. Her voice, too, was fearfully changed, and she spoke to me at intervals. I am afraid, said she, that it is selfish in me to have asked you to visit the old woman again, before she dies, yet perhaps it would have been a greater shock to hear suddenly that I was dead, than to see me first thus. I clasped her shriveled hand. Are you indeed so ill? I asked. Do you not perceive death in my face? replied she. It is strange, I ought to have expected this, and yet I confess it has taken me unaware. I never clung to life, or enjoyed it, till these last months, while among those I senselessly deserted. And it is hard to be snatched immediately away. I am glad, however, that I am not a victim of the plague. Probably I should have died at this hour, though the world continued as it was in my youth. She spoke with difficulty, and I perceived that she regretted the necessity of death even more than she cared to confess, and she had not to complain of an undue shortening of existence. Her faded person showed that life had naturally spent itself. We had been alone at first, now Clara entered. The countess turned to her with a smile and took the hand of this lovely child. Her roseate palm and snowy fingers contrasted with relaxed fibers and yellow hue of those of her aged friend. She bent to kiss her, touching her withered mouth with the warm, full lips of youth. Vernet said the countess, I need not recommend this dear girl to you. For your own sake you will preserve her. Were the world as it was, I should have a thousand sage precautions to impress, that one so sensitive, good, and beauteous might escape the dangers that used to lurk for the destruction of the fair and excellent. This is all nothing now. I commit you, my kind nurse, to your uncle's care. To yours I entrust the dearest relic of my better self. Be to Adrian, sweet one, what you have been to me. Enliven his sadness with your sprightly sallies. Soothe his anguish by your sober and inspired converse. When he is dying, nurse him as you have done me. Clara burst into tears. Kind girl, said the countess, do not weep for me. Many dear friends are left to you. And yet, cried Clara, you talk of their dying also. 
This is indeed cruel. How could I live if they were gone? If it were possible for my beloved protector to die before me, I could not nurse him. I could only die too. The venerable lady survived this scene only twenty-four hours. She was the last tie binding us to the ancient state of things. It was impossible to look on her and not call to mind in their wonted guise events and persons as alien to our present situation as the disputes of Themistocles and Aristides, or the wars of the two roses in her native land. The crown of England had pressed her brow, the memory of my father and his misfortunes, the vain struggles of the late king, the images of Raymond, Evatney, and Perdita, who had lived in the world's prime, were brought vividly before us. We consigned her to the oblivious tomb with reluctance, and when I turned from her grave, Janus veiled his retrospective face, that which gaze on future generations had long lost its faculty. After remaining a week at Dijon, until thirty of our number deserted the vacant ranks of life, we continued our way towards Geneva. At noon on the second day we arrived at the foot of Jura. We halted here during the heat of the day. Here fifty human beings, fifty the only human beings that survived of the food-teeming earth, assembled to read in the looks of each other ghastly plague, or wasting sorrow, desperation, or worse, carelessness of future or present evil. Here we assembled at the foot of this mighty wall of mountain, under a spreading walnut tree, a brawling stream refreshed the green sward by its sprinkling, and the busy grasshopper chirped among the thyme. We clustered together a group of wretched sufferers, a mother cradled in her enfeebled arms the child, last of many, whose glazed eye was about to close forever. Here beauty, late glowing in youthful luster and consciousness, now wan and neglected, knelt fanning with uncertain motion the beloved, who lay striving to paint his features, distorted by illness, with a thankful smile. There, in a hard-featured, weather-worn veteran, having prepared his meal, sat, his head dropped on his breast, the useless knife falling from his grasp, his limbs utterly relaxed, as thought of wife and child and dearest relative, all lost, passed across his recollection. There sat a man who for forty years had basked in fortune's tranquil sunshine. He held the hand of his last hope, his beloved daughter, who had just attained womanhood, and he gazed on her with anxious eyes while she tried to rally her fainting spirit to comfort him. Here a servant, faithful to the last, though dying, waited on one, who, though still erect with health, gazed with gasping fear on the variety of woe around. Adrian stood leaning against a tree. He held a book in his hand, but his eye wandered from the pages and sought mine. They mingled a sympathetic glance. His looks confessed that his thoughts had quitted the inanimate print, for pages more pregnant with meaning, more absorbing, spread out before him. By the margin of the stream, apart from all, in a tranquil nook, where the purling brook kissed the green sward gently, Clara and Evelyn were at play, sometimes beating the water with large bows, sometimes watching the summer flies that sported upon it. Evelyn now chased a butterfly, now gathered a flower for his cousin, and his laughing cherub face and clear brow told of the light heart that beat in his bosom. Clara, though she endeavored to give herself up to his amusement, often forgot him as she turned to observe Adrian and me. She was now fourteen, and retained her childish appearance, though in height a woman she acted the part of the tenderest mother to my little orphan boy. To see her playing with him, or attending silently and submissively on her wants, you thought only of her admirable docility and patience, but in her soft eyes and the veined curtains that veiled them, 
In the clearness of her marmoreal brow, and the tender expression of her lips, there was an intelligence and beauty that at once excited admiration and love. When the sun had sunk towards the precipitate west, and the evening shadows grew long, we prepared to ascend the mountain. The attention that we were obliged to pay to the sick made our progress slow. The winding road, though steep, presented a confined view of rocky fields and hills, each hiding the other, till our farther ascent disclosed them in succession. We were seldom shaded from the declining sun, whose slant beams were instinct with exhausting heat. There are times when minor difficulties grow gigantic, when, as the Hebrew poet expressively terms it, the grasshopper is a burthen. So was it with our ill-fated party this evening. Adrian, usually the first to rally his spirits, and dash foremost into fatigue and hardship, with relaxed limbs and declined head, the reins hanging loosely in his grasp, left the choice of the path to the instinct of his horse, now and then painfully rousing himself, when the steepness of the ascent required that he should keep his seat with better care. Fear and horror encompassed me. Did his languid air attest that he also was struck with contagion? How long, when I look on his matchless specimen of mortality, may I perceive that his thought answers mine? How long will those limbs obey the kindly spirit within? How long will light and life dwell in the eyes of this my sole remaining friend? Thus pacing slowly, each hill surmounted only presented another to be ascended. Each jutting corner only discovered another, sister to the last, endlessly. Sometimes the pressure of sickness in one among us caused the whole cavalcade to halt. The call for water, the eagerly expressed wish to repose, the cry of pain, and suppressed sob of the mourner, such were the sorrowful attendants of our passage of the Jura. Adrian had gone first. I saw him while I was detained by the loosening of a girth, struggling with the upward path seemingly more difficult than any we had yet passed. He reached the top, and the dark outline of his figure stood in relief against the sky. He seemed to behold something unexpected and wonderful, for, pausing, his head stretched out, his arms for a moment extended, he seemed to give an all-hail to some new vision. Urged by curiosity, I hurried to join him. After battling for many tedious minutes with the precipice, the same scene presented itself to me, which had wrapped him in ecstatic wonder. Nature, or nature's favorite, the lovely earth, presented her most unrivaled beauties in resplendent and sudden exhibition. Below, far, far below, even as it were in the yawning abyss of the ponderous globe, lay the placid and azure expanse of Lake Leman, vine-covered hills hedged it in, and behind dark mountains in cone-like shape, our irregular cyclopean wall served for further defense. But beyond and high above all, as if the spirits of the air had suddenly unveiled their bright abodes, placed in scaleless altitude in the stainless sky, heaven-kissing, companions of the unattainable ether, were the glorious Alps, clothed in dazzling robes of light by the setting sun. And as if the world's wonders were never to be exhausted, their vast immensities, their jagged crags and roseate painting, appeared again in the lake below, dipping their proud heights beneath the unruffled waves, palaces for the naiads of the placid waters. Towns and villages lay scattered at the foot of Jura, which, with dark ravine and black promontories, stretched its roots into the watery expanse beneath. Carried away by wonder, I forgot the death of man and the living and beloved friend near me. When I turned, I saw tears streaming from his eyes. His thin hands pressed one against the other. 
his animated countenance beaming with admiration. Why, cried he at last, why, O oh heart, whisperest thou of grief to me? Drink in the beauty of that scene, and possess delight beyond what a fabled paradise could afford. By degrees our whole party surmounting the steep joined us, not one among them, but gave visible tokens of admiration, surpassing any before experienced. One cried, God reveals his heaven to us, we may die blessed. Another and another, with broken exclamations and extravagant phrases, endeavored to express the intoxicating effect of this wonder of nature. So we remained a while, lightened of the pressing burthen of fate, forgetful of death, into whose night we were about to plunge, no longer reflecting that our eyes now and forever were and would be the only ones which might perceive the divine magnificence of this terrestrial exhibition. An enthusiastic transport akin to happiness burst like a sudden ray from the sun on our darkened life, precious attribute of war-worn humanity that can snatch ecstatic emotion even from under the very Sharon Harrow that ruthlessly ploughs up and lays waste every hope. This evening was marked by another event. Passing through Fernay on our way to Geneva, unaccustomed sounds of music arose from the rural church which stood embosomed in trees, surrounded by smokeless, vacant cottages. The peal of an organ with rich swell awoke the mute air, lingering along and mingling with the intense beauty that clothed the rocks and woods and waves around. Music, the language of the immortals, disclosed to us as testimony of their existence. Music, silver key of the fountain of tears, child of love, soother of grief, inspirer of heroism and radiant thoughts. O oh, music, in this our desolation we had forgotten thee. Nor pipe at eve cheered us, nor harmony of voice, nor linked thrill of string. Thou camest upon us now, like the revealing of other forms of being, and transported as we have been by the loveliness of nature, fancying that we beheld the abode of spirits, now we might well imagine that we heard their melodious communings. We paused in such awe as would seize on a pale votarist, visiting some holy shrine at midnight, if she beheld animated and smiling the image which she worshipped. We all stood mute, many knelt. In a few minutes, however, we were recalled to human wonder and sympathy by a familiar strain. The air was Hayden's new created world, and, old and drooping as humanity had become, the world yet fresh as at creation's day might still be worthily celebrated by such an hymn of praise. Adrian and I entered the church. The nave was empty, though the smoke of incense rose from the altar, bringing with it the recollection of vast congregations. In once thronged cathedrals, we went into the loft. A blind old man sat at the bellows, his whole soul was ear, and as he sat in the attitude of attentive listening, a bright glow of pleasure was diffused over his countenance. For though his lackluster eye could not reflect the beam, yet his parted lips and every line of his face and venerable brow spoke delight. A young woman sat at the keys, perhaps twenty years of age. Her auburn hair hung on her neck, and her fair brow shone in its own beauty. But her drooping eyes let fall fast-flowing tears, while the constraint she exercised to suppress her sobs, and still her trembling, flushed her else-pale cheek. She was thin, languor and, alas, sickness bent her form. We stood looking at the pair, forgetting what we heard in the absorbing sight, till the last chord struck the peal died away in lessening reverberations. 
the mighty voice, inorganic we might call it, for we could in no way associate it with mechanism of pipe or key, stilled its sonorous tone, and the girl, turning to lend her assistance to her aged companion, at length perceived us. It was her father, and she, since childhood, had been the guide of his darkened steps. They were Germans from Saxony, and, emigrating thither, but a few years before, had formed new ties with the surrounding villagers. About the time that the pestilence had broken out, a young German student had joined them. Their simple history was easily divined. He, a noble, loved the fair daughter of the poor musician, and followed them in their flight from the persecutions of his friends. But soon the mighty leveller came with unblunted scythe to mow, together with the grass, the tall flowers of the field. The youth was an early victim. She preserved herself for her father's sake. His blindness permitted her to continue a delusion, at first the child of accident, and now solitary beings sole survivors in the land. He remained unacquainted with the change, nor was aware that when he listened to his child's music, the mute mountains, senseless lake, and unconscious trees were, himself accepted, her sole auditors. The very day that we arrived she had been attacked by symptomatic illness. She was paralyzed with horror at the idea of leaving her aged, sightless father alone on the empty earth. But she had not courage to disclose the truth, and the very excess of her desperation animated her to surpassing exertions. At the accustomed vesper hour, she led him to the chapel, and, though trembling and weeping on his account, she played without fault in time or error in note the hymn written to celebrate the creation of the adorned earth, soon to be her tomb. We came to her like visitors from heaven itself. Her high-wrought courage, her hardly-stained firmness, fled with the appearance of relief. With a shriek she rushed towards us, embraced the knees of Adrian, and uttering but the words, Oh, save my father, with sobs and historical cries, opened the long-shut floodgates of her woe. Poor girl, she and her father now lie side by side beneath the high walnut tree where her lover reposes, and which in her dying moments she had pointed out to us. Her father, at length aware of his daughter's danger, unable to see the changes of her dear countenance, obstinately held her hand, till it was chilled and stiffened by death. Nor did he then move or speak, till twelve hours after, kindly death took him to his breakless repose. They rest beneath the sod, the tree their monument. Hallowed spot is distinct in my memory, paled in by craggy Jura and the far immeasurable Alps. The spire of the church they frequented still points from out the embosoming trees, and though her hand be cold, still methinks the sounds of divine music which they love to wander about, solacing their gentle ghosts. End of chapter 7 Hey listeners, sorry for the interruption. More The Last Man coming up. But before that, I'd like to thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and your suggestions for future episodes and topic ideas at facebook.com blackclockaudio. Help support the show by keeping it paywall-free by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate a buck or five to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. We'll never ask you for your info or ask you to fill out a survey or just tell your friends about us. That's that's all we ask. Do you have no cash to donate? That's fine. Neither do we. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you 
get your podcasts from. You can always buy a cool shirt from pgttcm.threadless.com. And if you're wondering, hey, what's all this PGTTCM stuff about? People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our monthly end-of-the-month show where we talk to Cthulhu Mythos writers, game designers, talk about various aspects of the Cthulhu Mythos, going from the Big Bang to the cooling of our sun, just the whole, whole, whole kit and caboodle, from the perspective of Earthlings, of course. Next month is going to be Ambrose Bitter Bierce, one of my favorite weird fiction authors who also wrote Civil War tales and spooky dookie stories, and also, you know, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, that, that uh, story your 8th or ninth grade English teacher made you read? Yeah. Ambrose Spears, but we won't hold that against him. It's a good story, though. And in August, we're going to have anyone but Durleth, Cthulhu Mythos, non-Durlethian mythos stories, and more about August Durleth himself and Arkham House Publishing, and pretty much, I don't know, kind of talk about why everyone makes fun of August Durleth, but without him... Uh, there's 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 some stuff that would be missing. September. Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Oh yeah, it's going to be all about the Brontes. And of course, we'll more than likely have Andrew Grace uh, talking about the Brontes again, because Andrew Grace likes to talk about the Brontes. October. Nothing but spooky stories that you can play all October long, and ooh, maybe even December and November, when it's even darker and scarier. And November will be Old English Lit. So we're going to be doing stuff like Beowulf and stuff around that neck of the woods. Old English 800 Lit. It's that smooth, mellow lit that gives you more power. Old English 800 Lit. And we don't have anything planned for December. But hey, if you want to pitch in your two cents or your, I don't know, uh, opinion... We can, we, we'll listen, we'll check it out, and if it's something that we can arrange, then it's something we can do. So, your input is always appreciated. Thank you so much, and back to Mary Shelley's The Last Man. Recording by Stephanie Dupal de Martin. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 3, Chapter 8. We had now reached Switzerland, so long the final mark and aim of our exertions. We had looked, I know not wherefore, with hope and pleasing expectation, on her congregation of hills and snowy crags, and opened our bosoms with renewed spirits to the icy biz, which even at midsummer used to come from the northern glacier laden with cold. Yet how could we nourish expectation of relief? Like her native England and the vast extent of fertile France, this mountain-embowered land was desolate of its inhabitants. Nor bleak mountain-top, nor snow-nourished rivulet, not the ice-laden biz, nor thunder the tamer of contagion had preserved them. Why, therefore, should we claim exemption? Who was there indeed to save? What troop had we brought fit to stand at bay and combat with the conqueror? We were a failing remnant, tamed to mere submission to the coming blow, a train half-dead, through fear of death, a hopeless, unresisting, almost reckless crew, which, in the tossed bark of life, had given up all pillage and resigned themselves to the destructive force of ungoverned winds. Like a few furrows of unreaped corn, which, left standing on a wide field after the rest is gathered to the garner, are swiftly borne down by the winter storm. 
like a few straggling swallows, which, remaining after their fellows had, on the first unkind breath of passing autumn, migrated to genial climes, were struck to earth by the first frost of November. Like a stray sheep that wanders over the sleet-beaten hillside, while the flock is in the pen and dies before morning dawn. Like a cloud, like one of many, that were spread an impenetrable woof over the sky, which, when the shepherd north has driven its companions to drink antipodean noon, fades and dissolves in the clear ether, such were we. We left the fair margin of the beauteous lake of Geneva and entered the alpine ravines, tracing to its source the brawling Arve through the rock-bound valley of Servox, besides the mighty waterfalls and under the shadow of the inaccessible mountains we travelled on while the luxuriant walnut-tree gave place to the dark pine, whose musical branches swung in the wind, and whose upright forms had braved a thousand storms, till the verdant sod, the flowery dell, and shrubbery hill were exchanged for the sky-piercing, untrodden, seedless rock, the bones of the world waiting to be clothed with everything necessary to give life and beauty. Strange that we should seek shelter here, surely if, in those countries where earth was wont, like a tender mother, to nourish her children, we had found her a destroyer, we need not seek it here, where stricken by keen penury she seemed to shudder through her stony veins. Nor were we mistaken in our conjecture. We vainly sought the vast and ever-moving glaciers of Chamonix, rifts of pendant ice, seas of congelated waters, the leafless groves of tempest-battered pines, dells, mere paths for the loud avalanche, and hilltops the resort of thunderstorms. Pestilence reigned paramount even here. By the time that day and night, like twin sisters of equal growth, shared equally their dominion over the hours, one by one, beneath the ice caves, beside the waters springing from the thawed snows of a thousand winters, Another and yet another of the remnant of the race of man closed their eyes forever to the light. Yet we were not quite wrong in seeking a scene like this, whereon to close the drama. Nature, true to the last, consoled us in the very heart of misery. Sublime grandeur of outward objects soothed our hapless hearts, and were in harmony with our desolation. Many sorrows have befallen man during his checkered course, and many a woe-stricken mourner had found himself sole survivor among many. Our misery took its majestic shape and coloring from the vast ruin that accompanied and made one with it. Thus on lovely earth many a dark ravine contains a brawling stream, shadowed by romantic rocks, threaded by mossy paths. But all except this wanted the mighty background, the towering Alps, whose snowy capes or bared ridges lifted us from our dull mortal abode to the palaces of nature's own. The solemn harmony of event and situation regulated our feelings and gave as it were a fitting costume to the last act. Majestic gloom and tragic pomp attended the decease of wretched humanity. The funeral procession of monarchs of old was transcended by our splendid shoes. Near the sources of the Arveiron we performed the rites four, four only excepted, the last of the species. Adrian and I, leaving Clara and Evelyn wrapped in peaceful, unobserving slumber, carried the body to this desolate spot, and placed it in those caves of ice beneath the glacier, which rive and split with the slightest sound, and bring destruction on those within the clefts. No bird or beast of prey could here profane the frozen form. So with hushed steps and in silence we placed the dead on a bier of ice, 
and then, departing, stood on the rocky platform beside the river springs. All hushed as we had been, the very striking of the air with our persons had sufficed to disturb the repose of this thawless region, and we had hardly left the cavern before vast blocks of ice, detaching themselves from the roof, fell and covered the human image we had deposited within. We had chosen a fair moonlight night, but our journey thither had been long, and the crescent sank behind the western heights by the time we had accomplished our purpose. The snowy mountains and blue glaciers shone in their own light. The rugged and abrupt ravine, which formed one side of Mont-Anvers, was opposite to us, the glacier at our side. At our feet, Arveyron, white and foaming, dashed over the pointed rocks that jutted into it, and, with whirring spray and ceaseless roar, disturbed the stilly night. Yellow lightnings played around the vast dome of Mont Blanc, silent as the snow-clad rock they illuminated. All was bare, wild, and sublime, while the singing of the pines and melodious murmurings added a gentle interest to the rough magnificence. Now the riving and fall of icy rocks clave the air, now the thunder of the avalanche burst on our ears. In countries whose features are of less magnitude, nature betrays her living powers in the foliage of the trees, in the growth of herbage, in the soft purling of meandering streams. Here, endowed with giant attributes, the torrent, the thunderstorm, and the flow of massive waters display her activity. Such the churchyard, such the requiem, such the eternal congregation that waited on our companion's funeral. Nor was it the human form alone which we had placed in this eternal sepulchre, whose obsequies we now celebrated. With this last victim, plague vanished from the earth. Death had never wanted weapons wherewith to destroy life, and we, few and weak as we had become, were still exposed to every other shaft with which his full quiver teemed. But pestilence was absent from among them. For seven years it had had full sway upon earth. She had trod every nook of her spacious globe. She had mingled with the atmosphere, which, as a cloak enwraps all our fellow creatures, the inhabitants of native Europe, the luxurious Asiatic, the swarthy African, and free American had been vanquished and destroyed by her. Her barbarous tyranny came to its close here in the rocky vale of Chamonix. Still recurring scenes of misery and pain, the fruits of this distemper made no more a part of our lives. The word plague no longer rung in our ears. The aspect of plague incarnate in the human countenance no longer appeared before our eyes. From this moment I saw plague no more. She abdicated her throne and despoiled herself of her imperial scepter among the ice rocks that surrounded us. She left solitude and silence co-heirs of her kingdom. My present feelings are so mingled with the past that I cannot say whether the knowledge of this change visited us as we stood on this sterile spot. It seemed to me that it did, that a cloud seemed to pass from over us, that a weight was taken from the air, that henceforth we breathed more freely, and raised our heads with some portion of former liberty. Yet we did not hope. We were impressed by the sentiment that our race was run, but that plague would not be our destroyer. The coming time was as a mighty river, down which a charmed boat is driven, whose mortal steersman knows that the obvious peril is not the one he needs fear, yet that danger is nigh, and who floats, awestruck under beetling precipices, through the dark and turbid waters, seeing in the distance yet stranger and ruder shapes, towards which he is irresistibly impelled. What would become of us? 
Oh, for some Delphic oracle or Pythian maid to utter the secrets of futurity, or for some Oedipus to solve the riddle of the cruel sphinx. Such Oedipus was I to be, not divining a word's juggle, but whose agonizing pangs and sorrow-tainted life were to be the engines wherewith to lay bare the secrets of destiny, and reveal the meaning of the enigma whose explanation closed the history of the human race. Dim fancies akin to these haunted our minds, and instilled feelings not unallied to pleasure, as we stood beside the silent tomb of nature reared by these lifeless mountains above her living veins choking her vital principle. Thus we are left, said Adrian, two melancholy blasted trees, where once a forest waved. We are left to mourn and pine and die, yet even now we have our duties which we must string ourselves to fulfill the duty of bestowing pleasure where we can, and by force of love irradiating with rainbow hues the tempest of grief. Nor will I repine if, in this extremity, we preserve what we now possess. Something tells me, Vernet, that we need no longer dread our cruel enemy, and I cling with delight to the oracular voice. Though strange, it will be sweet to mark the growth of your little boy and the development of Clara's young heart. In the mists of a desert world we are everything to them. And, if we live, it must be our task to make this new mode of life happy to them. At present this is easy, for their childish ideas do not wander into futurity, and the stinging craving for sympathy in all of love of which our nature is susceptible is not yet awake within them. We cannot guess what will happen then, when nature asserts her indefeasible and sacred powers. But, long before that time, we may all be cold, as he who lies in yonder tomb of ice. We need only provide for the present and endeavor to fill with pleasant images the inexperienced fancy of your lovely niece. The scenes which now surround us, vast and sublime as they are, are not such as can best contribute to this work. Nature is here like our fortunes, grand but too destructive, bare and rude, to be able to afford delight to our young imagination. Let us descend to the sunny plains of Italy. Winter will soon be here, to clothe this wilderness in double desolation but we will cross the bleak hilltops and lead her to scenes of fertility and beauty, where her path will be adorned with flowers and the cheery atmosphere inspire pleasure and hope. In pursuance of this plan, we quitted Chamonix on the following day. We had no cause to hasten our steps. No event was transacted beyond our actual sphere to enchain our resolves, so we yielded to every idle whim and deemed our time well spent when we could behold the passage of the hours without dismay. We loitered along the lovely vale of Servox, passed long hours on the bridge, which, crossing the ravine of Arve, commands a prospect of its pine-clothed depths, and the snowy mountains that wall it in. We rambled through romantic Switzerland, till, fear of coming winter leading us forward, the first days of October found us in the valley of La Maurienne, which leads to Signy. I cannot explain the reluctance we felt at leaving this land of mountains. Perhaps it was that we regarded the Alps as boundaries between our former and our future state of existence, and so clung fondly to what of old we had loved. Perhaps because we had now so few impulses urging to a choice between two modes of action, we were pleased to preserve the existence of one, and preferred the prospect of what we were to do, to the recollection of what had been done. We felt that this year danger was past, and we believed that for some months we were secured to each other. There was a thrilling, agonizing delight in the thought. It filled the eyes with misty tears, it tore the heart with tumultuous heavings. Frailer than the snowfall in the river, 
were we each and all, but we strove to give life and individuality to the meteoric course of our several existences, and to feel that no moment escaped us unenjoyed. Thus tottering on the dizzy brink we were happy. Yes, as we sat beneath the toppling rocks, beside the waterfalls, near forests, ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery, where the chamois grazed, and the timid squirrel laid up its hoard, descanting on the charms of nature, drinking in the while her unalienable beauties, we were in an empty world happy. Yet, O oh, days of joy, days when eye spoke to eye, and voices sweeter than the music of the swinging branches of the pines, or rivulets gentle murmur, answered mine. Yet, O oh, days replete with beatitude, days of love's society, days unutterably dear to me forlorn. Pass, O oh, pass before me, making me in your memory forget what I am. Behold how my streaming eyes blot the senseless paper. Behold how my features are convulsed by agonizing throes. At your mere recollection, now that alone my tears flow, my lips quiver, my cries fill the air, unseen, unmarked, unheard. Yet, oh yet, days of delight, let me dwell on your long-drawn hours. As the cold increased upon us, we passed the Alps and descended into Italy. As the uprising of morn we sat at our repast, and cheated our regrets by gay sallies or learned disquisitions. The livelong day we sauntered on, still keeping in view the end of our journey, but careless of the hour of its completion. As the evening star shone out, and the orange sunset far in the west marked the position of the dear land we had forever left, talk, thought enchaining, made the hours fly. Oh, that we had lived thus for ever and for ever! Of what consequence was it to our four hearts that they alone were the fountains of life in the wide world? As far as mere individual sentiment was concerned, we had rather be left thus united together than if, each alone in a populous desert of unknown men, we had wandered truly companionless to life's last term. In this manner, we endeavored to console each other. In this manner, true philosophy taught us to reason. It was the delight of Adrian and myself to wait on Clara, naming her the little queen of the world, ourselves her humblest servitors. When we arrived at a town, our first care was to select for her its most choice abode, to make sure that no harrowing relic remained of its former inhabitants, to seek food for her and minister to her wants with assiduous tenderness. Clara entered into her scheme with childish gaiety. Her chief business was to attend on Evelyn, but it was her sport to array herself in splendid robes, adorn herself with sunny gems, and ape a princely state. Her religion, deep and pure, did not teach her to refuse to blunt thus the keen sting of regret. Her youthful vivacity made her enter hardened soul into these strange masquerades. We had resolved to pass the ensuing winter at Milan, which, at his being a large and luxurious city, would afford us choice of homes. We had descended the Alps and left far behind the vast forests and mighty crags. We entered smiling Italy. Mingling grass and corn grew in her plains, the unpruned vines threw their luxuriant branches around the elms. The grapes overripe had fallen on the ground, or hung purple or burnished green among the red and yellow leaves. The ears of standing corn winnowed to emptiness by the spendthrift winds, the fallen foliage of the trees, the weed-grown brooks, the dusky olive now spotted with its blackened fruit, the chestnuts to which the squirrel only was harvest man, all plenty and yet alas all poverty, painted in wondrous hues and fantastic groupings this land of beauty. 
In the towns, in the voiceless towns, we visited the churches, adorned by pictures, masterpieces of art, or galleries of statues, while in this genial clime the animals, in newfound liberty, rambled through the gorgeous palaces and hardly feared our forgotten aspect. The dove-colored oxen turned their full eyes on us, and paced slowly by, a startling throng of silly sheep, with pattering feet would start up in some chamber, formerly dedicated to the repose of beauty, and rush huddling past us down the marble staircase into the street, and again in at the first open door, taking unrebuked possession of hallowed sanctuary, or kingly council chamber. We no longer started at these occurrences, nor at worse exhibition of change, when the palace had become a mere tomb, pregnant with fetid stench, strewn with the dead, and we could perceive how pestilence and fear had played strange antics, chasing the luxurious dame to the dank fields and bare cottage, gathering among carpets of Indian woof and beds of silk the peasant or the deformed half-human shape of the wretched beggar. We arrived at Milan and stationed ourselves at the Viceroy's palace. Here we made laws for ourselves, dividing our day and fixing distinct occupations for each hour. In the morning we rode in the adjoining country or wandered through the palaces in search of pictures or antiquities. In the evenings we assembled to read or to converse. There were few books that we dared read, few that did not cruelly deface the painting we bestowed on our solitude by recalling combinations and emotions never more to be experienced by us. Metaphysical disquisition, fiction which wandering from all reality lost itself in self-created errors. Poets of times so far gone by that to read of them was as to read of Atlantis and Utopia, are such as referred to nature only and the workings of one particular mind, but most of all talk varied and ever new beguiled our hours. While we paused thus in our onward career towards death, time held on its accustomed course. Still and forever did the earth roll on, enthroned in her atmospheric car, speeded by the force of the invisible coursers of never-erring necessity. And now this dewdrop in the sky, this ball, ponderous with mountains, lucent with waves, passing from the short tyranny of watery Pisces and the frigid ram, entered the radiant demesne of Taurus and the twins. There, fanned by vernal airs, the spirit of beauty sprung from her cold repose, and with winnowing wings and soft pacing feet set a girdle of verdure around the earth, sporting among the violets, hiding within the springing foliage of the trees, tripping lightly down the radiant streams into the sunny deep. For lo, winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with their tender grape give a good smell. Thus was it in the time of the ancient regal poet, thus was it now. Yet how could we miserable hail the approach of this delightful season? We hoped, indeed, that death did not now as heretofore walk in its shadow, yet left as we were alone to each other, we looked into each other's faces with inquiring eyes, not daring altogether to trust her presentiments and endeavouring to divine which would be the hapless survivor to the other three. We were to pass the summer at the Lake of Como, and thither we removed as soon as spring grew to her maturity, and the snow disappeared from the hilltops. Ten miles from Como, under the steep heights of the eastern mountains, by the margin of the lake, was a villa called Pignana. From its being built on the side of a fountain, whose periodical ebb and flow is described by the younger Pliny in his letters, 
the house had nearly fallen into ruin, till in the year 2090 an English nobleman had bought it, and fitted up with every luxury. Two large halls, hung with splendid tapestry and paved with marble, opened on each side of a court, of whose two other sides one overlooked the deep dark lake, and the other was bounded by a mountain, from whose stony side gushed with roar and splash the celebrated fountain. Above, underwood of myrtle and tufts of odorous plants crowned the rock, while the star-pointing giant cypresses reared themselves in the blue air, and the recesses of the hills were adorned with the luxuriant growth chestnut trees. Here we fixed our summer residence. We had a lovely skiff in which we sailed, now stemming the midmost waves, now coasting the overhanging craggy banks, thick sown with evergreens which dipped their shining leaves in the waters and were mirrored in many a little bay and creek of waters of translucent darkness. Here orange plants bloomed, here birds poured forth melodious hymns, and here during spring the cold snake emerged from the clefts and basked on the sunny terraces of rock. Were we not happy in this paradisiacal retreat? If some kind spirit had whispered forgetfulness to us, methinks we should have been happy here, where the precipitous mountains, nearly pathless, shut from our view the far fields of desolate earth, and with small exertion of the imagination we might fancy that the cities were still resonant with popular hum, and the peasant still guided his plough through the furrow, and that we, the world's free denizens, enjoyed a voluntary exile and not a remediless cutting off from our extinct species. Not one among us enjoyed the beauty of the scenery as much as Clara. Before we quitted Milan, a change had taken place in her habits and manners. She lost her gaiety, she laid aside her sports, and assumed an almost vestal plainness of attire. She shunned us, retiring with Evelyn to some distant chamber or silent nook, nor did she enter into his pastimes with the same zest as she was wont, but would sit and watch him with sadly tender smiles and eyes bright with tears, yet without a word of complaint. She approached us timidly, avoided our caresses, nor shook off her embarrassment till some serious discussion or lofty theme called her for a while out of herself. Her beauty grew as a rose, which, opening to the summer wind, discloses leaf after leaf till the sense aches with its excess of loveliness. A slight and variable color tinged her cheeks, and her motion seemed attuned by some hidden harmony of surpassing sweetness. We redoubled her tenderness and earnest attentions. She received them with grateful smiles that fled swift as sunny beam from a glittering wave on an April day. Our only acknowledged point of sympathy with her appeared to be Evelyn. This dear little fellow was a comforter and delight to us beyond all words. His buoyant spirit and his innocent ignorance of our vast calamity were balm to us, whose thoughts and feelings were overwrought and spun out in the immensity of speculative sorrow. To cherish, to caress, to amuse him, was the common task of all. Clara, who felt towards him in some degree like a young mother, gratefully acknowledged her kindness towards him. To me, oh, to me, who saw the clearer brows and soft eyes of the beloved of my heart, my lost and ever-dear Idris, reborn in his gentle face, to me he was dear ever to pain. If I pressed him to my heart, methought I clasped a real and living part of her, who had lain there through long years of youthful happiness. It was the custom of Adrian and myself to go out each day in our skiff to forage in the adjacent country. In these expeditions we were seldom accompanied by Clara or her little charge, but our return was an hour of hilarity. Evelyn ransacked her stores with childish eagerness, and we always brought some new-found gift for our fair companion. 
Then, too, we made discoveries of lovely scenes or gay palaces, whither in the evening we all proceeded. Our sailing expeditions were most divine, and with a fair wind or transverse course we cut the liquid waves. And if talk failed, under the pressure of thought, I had my clarionet with me, which awoke the echoes and gave the change to our careful minds. Clara at such times often returned to her former habits of free converse and gay sally, and though our four hearts alone beat in the world, those four hearts were happy. One day on our return from the town of Como, with a laden boat, we expected as usual to be met at the port by Clara and Evelyn, and we were somewhat surprised to see the beach vacant. I, as my nature prompted, would not prognosticate evil, but explained it away as a mere casual incident. Not so, Adrian. He was seized with sudden trembling and apprehension, and he called to me with vehemence to steer quickly for land, and, when near, leapt from the boat, half falling into the water, and, scrambling up to the steep bank, hastened along the narrow strip of garden, the only level space between the lake and the mountain. I followed without delay. The garden and inner court were empty, so was the house, whose every room we visited. Adrian called loudly upon Clara's name, and was about to rush up the near mountain path, when the door of a summer-house at the end of the garden slowly opened, and Clara appeared not advancing towards us, but leaning against a column of the building with blanched cheeks, in a posture of utter despondency. Adrian sprang towards her with a cry of joy, and folded her delightedly in his arms. She withdrew from his embrace, and, without a word, again entered the summer-house. Her quivering lips, her despairing heart, refused to afford her voice to express her misfortune. Poor little Evelyn had, while playing with her, been seized with sudden fever, and now lay torpid and speechless on a little couch in the summer-house. For a whole fortnight we unceasingly watched beside the poor child, as his life declined under the ravages of a virulent typhus. His little form and tiny lineaments encaged the embryo of the world-spanning mind of man. Man's nature, brimful of passions and affections, would have had an home in that little heart whose swift pulsations hurried towards their close. His small hand's fine mechanism, now flaccid and unbent, would in the growth of sinew and muscle have achieved works of beauty or of strength. His tender rosy feet would have trod in firm manhood the bowers and glades of earth. These reflections were now of little use. He lay, thought, and strength suspended, waiting and resisting the final blow. We watched at his bedside, and when the axis of fever was on him, we neither spoke nor looked at each other, marking only his obstructed breath and the mortal glow that tinged his sunken cheek, the heavy death that weighed on his eyelids. It is a trite evasion to say that words could not express her long-drawn agony. Yet how can words image sensations whose tormenting keenness throw us back, as it were, on the deep roots and hidden foundations of our nature, which shake our being with earthquake throw? so that we leave to confined in accustomed feelings which, like Mother Earth, support us and cling to some vain imagination or deceitful hope, which will soon be buried in the ruins occasioned by the final shock. I have called that period a fortnight which we pass watching the changes of the sweet child's malady, and such it might have been. At night we wondered to find another day gone, while each particular hour seemed endless. Day and night were exchanged for one another uncounted. We slept hardly at all, nor did we even quit his room except when a pang of grief seized us, and we retired from each other for a short period to conceal our sobs and tears. We endeavored in vain to abstract Clara from this deplorable scene. 
She sat, hour after hour, looking at him, now softly arranging his pillow, and, while he had power to swallow, administered his drink. At length the moment of his death came, the blood paused in its flow, his eyes opened, and then closed again, without convulsion or sigh. The frail tenement was left vacant of its spiritual inhabitant. I have heard that the sight of the dead has confirmed materialists in their belief. I ever felt otherwise. Was that my child, that moveless, decaying animation? My child was enraptured by my caresses, his dear voice clothed with meaning articulations his thoughts, otherwise inaccessible. His smile was a ray of the soul, and the same soul sat upon its throne in his eyes. I turn from this mockery of what he was. Take, O earth, thy debt. Freely and forever I consign to thee the garb thou didst afford. But thou, sweet child, amiable and beloved boy, either thy spirit hast sought a fitter dwelling, or, shrined in my heart, thou livest while it lives. We placed his remains under a cypress, the upright mountain being scooped out to receive them. And then Clara said, if you wish me to live, take me from hence. There is something in this scene of transcendent beauty, in these trees and hills and waves that forever whisper to me, Leave thy cumbrous flesh and make a part of us. I earnestly entreat you to take me away. So on the 15th of August we bade adieu to our villa and the embowering shades of this abode of beauty. To calm bay and noisy waterfall, to Evelyn's little grave we bade farewell, and then with heavy hearts we departed on our pilgrimage towards Rome. End of chapter 8 Thank you once again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. You can find us online at Black Clock Audio Tales on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Meet up with us at pgttcm.com Find out what's going on with this and other podcasts by Badger Drift Studios, which is where we record this, in beautiful North Portland. If you want to be on a show, if you have a book that you would like to have reviewed, if you want to be on Welcome to Portland, eat charcuterie and drink beer in the studio while learning how to podcast, I can accommodate that. But you have to take the first step by going to pgttcm.com and submitting, send us a link to your stories, become friends with us on Facebook at uh, PGTTCM or Black Clock Audio Tales. And PGTTCM, of course, is short for The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly show at the end of every month on Tuesday we have PGTTCM. Thank you so much for listening. Edited by D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, as always. Thank you.